0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Those big puppy eyes, the fluffy, waggy tail, the little yelps. For most of us, puppies are going to send us all goo goo gaga. And it's no wonder more and more scammers are using them to rip us off. Puppy scams are exploding. G'day, it's Dave Marchese with you for Hack. In a bit, you're going to hear why puppy scams have skyrocketed by 1,000%. Maybe you've been the victim of one. Also coming up, we're checking in with Pakistan after floods that world leaders have described as unimaginable. First, though.
2: Hack! Before our people saying no and being given that opportunity was was a really big thing, you know, where we feel that we could still talk for country appropriately. On Triple J...
1: For the last couple of weeks, we've been bringing you stories from our new podcast. It's called Who's Gonna Save Us? And it's all about the people fighting for action on climate change and the solutions they've come up with. This week's episode's all about how people are trying to use the law to help us avoid a climate catastrophe. And as hack reporter Ellie Grounds found out, a group of traditional owners is using our native title laws in a way never done before to try and get a huge fossil fuel project on their country stopped.
3: Yeah, I'm a Garanay. My name's Dorothy Ty and I travel here today to Ghana country to represent my people from Gomeroy. And I'm here today to serve you mob with a cease for trespassing A decease and desist on my country. This
4: audio isn't from a huge outdoor protest or an event about climate action or even First Nations rights. It's from inside a pretty boring conference room at the annual general meeting of oil and gas company Santos on Ghana Country in Adelaide back in May. We don't want this on country. That's Gomorrah woman Dorothy Ty. And what she's talking about is a multi-billion dollar gas development that her people have spent a decade trying to stop the Narrabri Gas Project. It would see up to 850 gas wells built across 95,000 hectares of state forest and privately owned farmland in northwest New South Wales. 1,000 hectares of that land would need to be cleared, including in the culturally significant Pilliga Forest.
2: And the Pilliga is is the lungs of Gomorrah country. It's, we've got our air, we've got our water, we could, what else could we need? Honestly, uh, uh, and the piliga provides all of that. Yeah, it's one big major source of, of life. Yama, I'm Kara um, kinchala from Narrabri and the Piligar area. Um, I'm a Gomorrah traditional owner. i um, a Gomorrah which means woman in Gomorrah and our family have always lived in and around the Pilliga forest,
4: and it still continues today. Kara is also the Narrabri community coordinator for environmental group Lock the Gate. The Pilliga is the largest remaining native forest west of the Great Dividing Range, and Kara says it's sacred to the Gomroy people.
2: We've got our Pilliga Harry Man. He's um, sorry, I'm going to show you while I'm here, but he's um. Oh, wow. Yeah, OK, Cara's sure. just taking... She's <laughs> taking off the, the hoodie that she's wearing and she's showing Sorry. me a yeah, T-shirt. But... So our hairy man in the Piliga is a small one, and he's cheeky and he's fierce, and he will make sure that you respect the Piliga because it is his home. Yeah, we, we protect that and look after it and have this mutual respect.
4: Santos has committed to supplying all of the gas from the project to the domestic market and it's expected to create enough gas to meet half of the demand for New South Wales. But it's important to note the company isn't required to reserve it for that state's market. The other thing it's estimated to produce is more than 100 million tonnes of carbon dioxide equivalents over its 25-year lifetime. Santos has federal and state approval for the project, but there's still something standing in its way, a native title claim over the land by the Gomeroe people. That means Santos needs their consent to go ahead with the project, but they haven't given it. We went to a nation meeting Mm. and, um, you know, we all voted no. What they rejected was an agreement with Santos that would have come with financial compensation. It's a super risky move for a native title group. The chance of getting anything if the project goes ahead has now drastically narrowed. Bukhara says they're backing themselves.
2: But for our people, saying no and being given that opportunity was was a really big thing, Um, sort of gave us that power in a sense,
4: you know, where we feel that we could still talk for country appropriately. Now, the only way Santos can move forward with the project is for the National Native Title Tribunal to give it the green light. And that is where things got interesting.
2: Yeah, so what we've done is we've sort of used these acts and, and laws that aren't technically made for us and,
4: and we're trying to flip it into something that will work for us, um, like saying no and being heard. Normally, a native turtle group trying to stop a fossil fuel project will argue how it would impact their enjoyment of their native title rights. For example, how it might damage sacred cultural sites or impact their access to significant land or waters. And a company like Santos will usually argue its project is in the public interest because it will help power our homes and businesses and strengthen the economy. But after the sixth IPCC report came out in August last year, the Gomoroi people and their lawyers grabbed that scientific evidence and ran with it. They argued the project would contribute to greenhouse gas emissions and grave environmental harm damage the economy and mentally and physically harm people, not just in Narrabri, but across the whole country. And therefore, it's not in the public interest. Yes, we're definitely pushing it out out of its um, comfort zone, native title at the moment. It's an unusual argument. I've confirmed with native title experts that a native title group has never made this point before. The tribunal still hasn't handed down its decision, so we don't know yet if the argument was successful. And remember Dorothy, who got up at the Santos AGM? We should point out that her trip there was funded by Extinction Rebellion's South Australian chapter and her access to the AGM itself came via a voting proxy that was organised by ethical investment advocate Market Forces. I wanted to know what that was like for Dorothy. So a couple months ago, I drove to Moree, where she lives, and
3: asked her. I actually felt really good. I did. I felt like there was a lot of things that ne- it needed to be done. It was sort of like a release from pressure and which we n- still need to do, carry that, keep fighting the fight with these people. Hack
1: on Triple J. Ellie Grounds with that story. And in a statement to the ABC, Santos said it has been engaging and working constructively with the gomoroi community since 2012 and will continue to do so. If you want to hear more, Hack's new podcast, Who's Going to Save Us, has a full episode exploring the issues available now on the Triple J app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hack.
4: I mean, unless more assistance comes, we're not going to be able to reach children in need.
1: On Triple J. Tens of millions of people are right now without homes in Pakistan. Many are living in tents on the only scraps of dry land they can find. A third of Pakistan has gone underwater in recent unprecedented floods. And I know, unprecedented. You're thinking, what? We've used that word a lot here in Australia, but even the United Nations is saying this disaster is like nothing they've ever seen. There's a lot happening in the world right now, and unfortunately that means some of the attention's moved away from all these people that have been left without power, food, in desperate need of fresh water. And Pakistan's government's calling out the rest of the world. It's saying the floods are a direct result of climate change. So where are things at now? Georgia Hitch explains. Videos on social
5: media showed concrete buildings being swept away by a torrent of water.
6: People are short of food, they are short of tents. Not only this, the diseases are increasing in those areas.
0: The scale of devastation is massive and requires immense humanitarian response.
7: When the monsoon rains arrived in Pakistan a couple of months ago, it was clear pretty quickly they were going to lead to disaster. In July and August alone, the country received almost 200% more rain than the average over the last 30 years. The floods have so far left a third of the country underwater, killed at least 1300 people, but that number is likely to keep rising and injured tens of thousands. More concerning though, is the 33 million people who've been displaced. And I feel like sometimes numbers like that lose their value. So let me put it this way. That is more than if you combined the entire populations of Australia and New Zealand. It's insane.
3: There just is not enough dry land for uh, shelter. People
4: don't have safe water. Um, and this in itself is you know, another emergency and an emergency.
7: The federal government's giving $2 million in aid to help with the floods. But the United Nations is pushing us and other countries to step up and do more and not just throw money at the problem. The amount of rain Pakistan has had is enough on its own to cause historic floods. But to make matters worse, melting glaciers in the north of the country because of climate change have also added to the disaster.
5: We have declared war on nature. And as we see here in Pakistan, nature is striking back with devastating consequences. Climate change is supercharging the destruction of our planet.
7: That's the head of the UN, Antonio Guterres. He's also described the floods as climate carnage. Pakistan's government has been clear from the get-go that the ferocity of these floods is absolutely because of global warming. So, as well as helping now, Pakistan's climate change minister, Sherry Rehman is urging other countries to see the devastation as another wake-up call to move quicker on reducing our emissions.
3: Because we are less than 1% uh, of, of global emissions, there will be massive there will be impoverishment, obviously, after such a large scale of flooding. 90% of the crops of this country are wiped out through no fault of our own.
4: Hack on Triple J.
1: Georgia Hitch with that update. Let's find out a bit more about the cost of all this because it is something that the world needs to be talking about when nations are being hit by disasters that they can't afford to deal with. Dr. Melanie Pill is a research fellow at ANU's Institute for Climate, Energy and Disaster Solutions, and she's with us right now. G'day, Melanie. Thanks for joining us on Hack.
6: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Do we know how much it's going to cost to deal with this climate catastrophe in Pakistan?
6: Yes and no, kind of, because um you can put a dollar figure on it and I'm pretty sure there are all sorts of estimates already out there and floating around. But then the question is, does it really cover the whole costs? There's so many other things um that are not considered in the dollar figure. So loss and damage that is not able to be measured. For example, the hardship that families go through even years after the event, um, the loved ones that you've lost, your home, your personal belongings, cultural heritage things like that so you can't really put that into a dollar figure Um and in international negotiations we actually call that um, non-economic losses and it falls under that concept of loss and damage which is um, not just losses and damages but it's actually called loss and damage from climate change impacts.
1: And I guess that's why we are seeing so many figures being thrown around. Like I've seen some estimates, $10 billion, $15, $20 billion. So that makes sense because it's just so hard to quantify. Yeah. The head of the United Nations says he's never seen climate carnage like what's happened in Pakistan. And he's blaming rich countries for contributing to the devastation. He says they need to be providing more support. Is that likely?
6: Well, I guess also a little bit of the question is financial support for what? Um, so, what are you, what are you asking for? So, is it disaster support, adaptation projects, and or mitigation projects? And then when we look at loss and damage, that's a completely different story altogether. So, um, it then becomes very sensitive. Um, it's contentious because it often touches on compensation, um, or at least is associated with it. So, you would have. Um, heard uh, about the the environment minister of pakistan calling for compensation for loss and damage that is caused by climate change um, impacts so i think that's maybe also a question that we need to um ask ourselves what what is the financial support for for
1: and i get yeah compensation there would be a lot of communities i would think that would be saying sure money's great to help but we don't just want to be given money after things have happened we need yeah. uh, solutions and answers that can stop it happening in the first place. I wonder, Absolutely. does the world need to be having a more serious discussion about who should be paying for the devastating impacts of climate change? Because so far, the negotiations have been on for each country to think about their own emissions. But talking about the cost of it and, mm-hmm. and how that's divvied up, does that need to be a bigger conversation?
6: Well, I guess there's already a very, serious, very serious discussions around who should be paying for it and um, who should Pay how much and is it the biggest polluters? Um, is it private companies? So the problem is here, I guess, agreeing on, uh, on who's paying it and, um, who's paying how much. And then also it's nowhere near is what, what is needed in order to tackle disasters, um, like that or to implement more actions for climate change, more mitigation, a- um, actions. And that is neither from nations, um, nor from private actors and there is a call for private companies to uh, to contribute there as well.
1: So Melanie, who would be responsible for policing all of this because that would be the other hard thing to decide as well. I mean, you know, we've got all these countries in the world and somebody needs to be the one making sure that people are paying up.
6: That's a really, really good question. So we're seeing that there are some countries that are actually putting things into place. Uh, for example, the European Green Deal is a really big sort of climate uh, deal that's being um, developed in Europe. Um, and they're trying to um, put those mechanisms into place where countries or companies have to pay, for example, if their um, national climate change strategy is not up to scratch. Um, so um, make putting those kind of mechanisms into place. But there is also um, then a lot of pushback from other countries and say, well, this is not really fair. So there is a lot of discussion that's happening there. It's really not an easy thing to solve So um, because there's so many players involved and it's hard to tackle.
1: And I guess there's a risk as well that this debate over financing, compensation, money could see climate negotiations stall.
6: Yeah, especially I think we've seen that after the the floods in Pakistan at the G20, the negotiations there have literally stalled and uh, a lot of things were not agreed on, especially um, like I said, when it comes to loss and damage um, that is so contentious and not to be talk- talked about that much um, is where it might actually hinder progress on, uh, on, on mitigation.
1: They are really important discussions that we need to be having. Dr Melanie Pill from ANU's Institute for Climate, Energy and Disaster Solutions, thanks very much for your time.
6: Thank you so much for having me. Hack on Triple J.
1: And we'll make sure we keep you updated on what is happening in Pakistan in the weeks and months ahead. Certainly, news is breaking all the time.
3: I have basically dedicated myself to checking scams, websites, trying to figure out the patterns that they use on Triple J.
1: Is there anything more exciting than waiting for a new puppy or any pet really? You've made the big commitment, said goodbye to the cash. Now all you got to do is look forward to the eternal love and loyalty of your new best friend. It's expensive, yeah, but it's worth it. Look at its little face. You've showed all the mates the pics. It's going to be so cute. But when's it arriving? What's the holdup? The breeder's not answering his phone anymore. And then you realise, no, no, you've been scammed. And you're not alone. Thousands of Aussies have been ripped off in the past couple of years through animal scams. And it's not just puppies, it's other animals as well. I want to know, did you lose your money? Maybe you almost got scammed, but realised just in time. You can call in one 300 36 or message in to 43 have got a lot of messages pouring through on this one. Somebody says, I work in a bank and all of the puppy scams I've dealt with in the last three years have been mostly lonely people looking for companionship during the pandemic. There were limited puppies available, so they were normally desperate. Look, it is a big thing that's hitting with a lot of you. Serge Negus explains.
0: Yeah, we processed and decided that we'd go ahead with the purchase and deposited $2,000 for the puppy, which was the total amount we were told we would need to pay for the puppy to be delivered direct to our door. That's Lisa.
8: And yeah, like anyone about to get a puppy, her and her family were super excited. Then things started to get weird.
0: The next day we got a message to say that we now had to give more money for insurance and then there was kennel and crating fees for the aeroplane. And then once all that went through, after we'd argued about the amount of money and everything, they played on our emotions and the and the welfare of the puppy being stranded at an airport, not able to board because we wouldn't pay the money.
8: And then there came demands for even more money.
0: And it got to a point where I just said, we, we just can't pay any more money. And that's when I started to realise something wasn't right. And it finally dawned on me when I'd waited all morning at home for this puppy to arrive to surprise the kids with that never actually turned up, that I'd been scammed.
8: Lisa's family lost over five grand. And sadly, she's not alone. She's just one of thousands of Aussies who've been duped out of heaps of cash in an explosion of puppy scams.
5: Here's Liam Kennedy from consumer advocacy group Choice. We dug into some data that the ACCC gave us and we found that sort of between 2019 and last year, so pet scams of all kinds, the losses rose a thousand percent, sort of up to $4.2 million for 2021. And at the same time, the number of reports of those scams shot up by 500% as well. So it's a really huge increase.
8: Liam says that the COVID-19 lockdown had a big part to play in
5: that rise. So what we had there was a huge increase in people looking for pets, you know, looking for a companion to deal with that social isolation. But at the same time, the lockdown rules meant they couldn't travel to see the animal like they normally would. So then you had a lot of people going online, searching for pets. Um, they knew they wouldn't be able to see the animals, so they're more likely to sort of click on an online ad and just sort of pay up some money up front and then sort of accept a story that the pet would be sent to them.
3: My mother, who's really ill, um, wanted a companion, and I took to all the rescues and couldn't find a dog because they had all been taken.
8: That's Sandy Trujillo. At the start of lockdown in 2020, Despite going through a rigorous process to verify a puppy breeder, she fell victim to an elaborate online scam.
3: I asked them for ID. They sent me someone else's ID that they had stolen. I found this out later. It belonged to another breeder who was also selling the same breed of dogs, but they'd stolen her identification. So anyway, after trying to verify who they were and checked her ID and everything, I thought, okay, this checks out. I sent through the $1,600.
8: Sandy was devastated. This puppy wasn't just a dog, it was going to help her sick mum through lockdown.
3: I was really emotional when I was buying the dog too and and feeling really excited for mum that she would have finally a companion after all these days, you know, that I hadn't been able to go there and be physically with my mum.
8: After the ordeal, Sandy created Puppy Scam Awareness Australia, a support network for victims that's actively involved in trying to stop scammers as well. Her work has helped law enforcement agencies from all around the world break up puppy scam networks.
3: I have basically dedicated myself to checking scams, websites, um, trying to figure out the patterns that they use, how they, how it's all connected.
8: Sandy says that often the embarrassment of being scammed means that victims don't seek help, a mentality she's trying to change.
3: It doesn't matter how smart you are, anyone is capable of being scammed. I hear this time and time again, when they say, how can you be so stupid? Believe me, I have come across CEOs from major companies. One guy was a uh, security firewall expert.
8: Sandy says that if you get hit by a puppy scam, Don't let the shame get the better of you.
3: Do not be discouraged reporting this to police. Police can actually subpoena bank records and trace the money. If you trace the money, you will find the culprit. I guarantee it. But how do you protect yourself
8: from being scammed in the first place? A lot of it comes down to understanding how the scams work, which is often through the identity theft of legit breeders. Here's Liam from Choice again.
5: They are sort of like just taking the name of the business, taking the ABN, other details, people's names. They've seen listed on legit pages and just sort of creating new websites and you might be looking at a false copy which is just there to get your money.
8: And Sandy says there are a few key things you can do to verify whether a breeder is fake or not
3: reverse imaging searching. So that's when you grab a picture and do a Google reverse search and it will basically tell you if that picture's been replicated on any other website. Copy and Google testimonials, that's a good one. It often will show you where it's been replicated. The other good one to check is shipping and transport. They'll talk about quarantine. We don't have rabies in Australia, so that's another red flag. What the scammers do is they'll make you think that you're paying the quarantine, the crate, the rabies shots, but yet you'll get your dog within two, three working days.
1: Um, no. Hack on Triple J. Serge Negus with that story and how you got a lot to say about this one. Some messages coming through. Someone says, I'm a small animal vet, and during COVID, we saw a massive rise in the amount of people being scammed by puppy scammers. It was so sad. The potential owner was always absolutely devastated. Another person says, purchased a puppy off a website. The business claimed the puppy was in Darwin and would be flown down to Sydney. We were even given a flight number to track the puppy. Never showed up. And Drew says, about a year ago, I lost about $7,000 on a puppy scam. Horrible, horrible people. And yeah, a lot of people are saying, well, why are you getting puppies and and animals from breeders anyway go to shelters I guess part of that is during COVID that was a bit trickier that might be the reason why some people uh, weren't doing that I want to find out a bit more about the scamming though and with us now is Associate Professor Cassandra Cross from the School of Justice at Queensland University of Technology hey Cassandra thanks for joining us
9: no worries thanks for having me
1: why are we so vulnerable when it comes to puppy scams do you think
9: Oh, how can we not be vulnerable with these? I mean, it's such an emotional connection. There's nothing more than having a a pet who has adorable eyes, fluffy, can keep us company. Some of the photos that are online in terms of the pets that are out there, it's a very strong emotional connection. And that's exactly what offenders need in order to try and leverage that and manipulate and exploit people into sending them money.
1: Yeah, def- so, def- pets, yeah. definitely an emotional thing, as you say, like people pour all yeah. their emotions into their pets. I'm wondering, is there anyone that's more likely to fall victim to this kind of fraud, like older or younger people, or is it across the board?
9: I think for this particular type of fraud, it is across the board. So, if we think about fraud and vulnerabilities, I'd argue that we all have different vulnerabilities and particularly for the pet schemes during COVID, as was very clearly demonstrated in your story just before, um, so many people were looking for that companionship to try and help them cope through the significant lockdowns that uh, many people experienced here in Australia, particularly Victoria. So there was kind of this convergence of COVID, of people wanting to buy pets, of there not being enough um, available for genuine purchase. And offenders really embraced that opportunity and made the most out of it.
1: Someone on the text line, Montana from Palm Beach says, I found a puppy on an adoption site which turned out to be fake. We were sent videos, photos, even FaceTime to the lady. Alarm bells rang when she kept asking for more money for the deposit and refusing to let us come and visit the puppy. We ended up being scammed 1500 bucks. And Tim in Tassie says it's not only puppies. In the ag sector, there's often calves, lambs and other things all being advertised and people get scammed. That's crazy. I never knew about that. I've got someone on the line, Paul. You, Your sister got scammed, is that right?
5: Yeah, my, my sister got scammed. Uh, she bought a Labrador for $1,800 online. That was apparently
1: in Mount Isa. Yeah, wow. And just gave the – did she ever get the money back or that was
5: it? Um, we did successfully get the money back after a bit of uh, to and fro. Um, it was obviously a scam. I've got a um, degree in law and Um, did a few courses in cybercrime and everything like that, so I picked up on it straight away. Yeah, right. Um, But we originally went to the police, um, spoke to them about it so that we could get a crime report to go to the bank um, and sort of freeze that transaction. Um, And... Yeah, the police were a bit difficult to start with Um, and then we went to the bank and, you know, putting our lodgement against trying to freeze that and reverse the situation. And it can be really tricky, that
1: process of getting it all sorted. Thank you, Paul, for calling in. We're hearing so many other comments like that. Associate Professor Cassandra Cross is with us. Cassandra, what are some of the signs that you might be being scammed?
9: Uh, I think that previous caller just did pick up on a few of them. So um, with PET scams in particular, there's potentially a constant requirement for money. So not just payment for the pet, but then payment for vaccinations, for travel costs, for insurance. And in many cases, victims are asked to kind of send an escalating amount of money. And again, it's that emotional pull that offenders are using, that you don't want to think of any animal enduring any more travel than is necessary or any more kind of trauma that's necessary. Um, In terms of pictures that are on the internet, There's so many adorable pictures of pets that are out there that, again, it's an attractive way for offenders to try and, I guess, make that connection with potential victims. But you can look for whether or not the pictures are being used on multiple websites. You can certainly look out for the type of website that you're using, um, whether it's a, a genuine breeder or not. But in some circumstances, as was reflected in a previous call, that won't always be successful. So there are some challenges in in being able to verify.
1: Yeah, and I guess that's the advice, right, that people just need to be making sure that they're being super vigilant, especially when so much money is involved. Um, really appreciate your insight into this, Dr. Cassandra Cross from the Queensland University of Technology. Thanks very much for coming on Hack.
9: Thanks for having me.
1: And we've got some more messages coming through. Somebody come and says, I'm a Cavoodle breeder based in New South Wales. It's important to acknowledge that the breeder-puppy family relationship is one of trust. It's not and should never be a simple exchange of texts. Another person says, victims can call the Australian Cyber Security Centre to seek support for submitting a cyber crime report. And you can find that on cyber.gov.au. And another person says, want to avoid puppy scams? Avoid breeders altogether. A ridiculous amount of family friendly animals end up in pounds through no fault of their own. You can reach out to your local rescue group and adopt. Don't shop. Hack on Triple J. Huge response there on the puppy scams. A lot of people have been impacted or know people that have been. And a big thanks as well to Associate Professor Cassandra Cross.
0: That's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.